You don't want to wait for the magic technology to appear on Christmas Eve of uh, 2029 that gets you there. So we got to move forward today with what we have and making sure that uh, it works and is sustainable and not going to sacrifice affordability or reliability. This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones. Hello and welcome to a new edition of EEI's Global Circuit Podcast. Our guest today is Mr. Ben Folk. Ben is the Executive Chairman of Excel Energy and the former Chairman of Edison Electric Institute. Ben, welcome to EEI Global Circuit. Thanks, Lawrence. Great to be here. Well, Ben, Excel Energy throughout its history has been at the forefront of the U.S. electric power industry for a century, so to speak. But for our listeners in the U.S. and around the world who are not familiar with Excel Energy, can you talk about the company, how it started, where it operates, and perhaps more importantly, its journey to today being one of the leading clean energy companies in the country? Yeah, sure, Lawrence. I mean, our history really dates back more than 150 years, um, starting in Colorado. Excel Energy was built really from three uh, companies, public service company in Colorado, Southwestern Public Service Company that operates in Texas and New Mexico, Northern States Power that's in the upper Midwest, and all of those companies formed uh, in 2000 to create Excel Energy. And so today we operate in eight states uh, in the Midwest and in the West, and we like to say from North Star or Minnesota to the Lone Star or Texas. And that means we serve about 3.7 million electric customers and 2.1 million natural gas customers. And you asked about our clean energy journey. I would say Excel Energy has always been clean energy conscious, Ben. You know, our tagline is responsible by nature, but it really began for us in 2005. And at that time, we were predominantly a coal company. Um, and we started moving away from coal, started adding wind on our system, and we've been doing so ever since. In fact, since 2005, just about every year, we've been the number one wind provider in the country for our customers. The great news is as wind became more and more affordable, it became clear to us that we could put more wind and then solar onto our system and continue to move away from coal. Uh, And as a result, um, you know, we've been leading the clean energy transition for quite a while, but Lawrence, I would say that it really uh, came to a head in late 2018 when, when we did the work and we felt comfortable that we could announce our vision to be the first uh, utility in the nation to announce a, a vision to be carbon free uh, on the electric side of our business by 2050. And just as importantly, to establish an 80% carbon reduction by 2030 based upon a 2005 year base year. So. You know, that was a uh, that was big news when it came out, but I'm so proud of our industry because, as you know, more than 20 of uh, our peer companies within the EI organization have announced very similar goals. So um, it's great to lead it, but it's it's great to be a part of an industry that recognizes the importance of moving ahead with the clean energy transition while keeping our product affordable and reliable. We'll come back to this journey again, Ben, but. I want to now talk a little bit about the 100 years of existence. I mean, you've had certainly, you know, some successes and challenges. Uh, You've been with the company for for several years uh, in many leadership positions. You took over in 2011 as the chairman, president and CEO. So every time I have your peers on this podcast, we always talk about their first day on the job, so to speak. So can you recall how it felt when it went through your mind that 
you would be taking the responsibility of running such an important organization. And how do you prepare yourself mentally and emotionally for day one on the job? Was it easier because you were within the company? Was it harder? Can you talk about that? Well, yeah. Well, first of all, I'm going to just say the first thing I was was very excited. You know, I had never dreamed coming out of college that I would be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and a company with the reputation that Excel Energy has, uh, all the more so exciting. Um, so I was pretty honored and humbled by that. Uh, I also was quite aware of the tremendous responsibility that we have to serve our customers, our communities, our stakeholders, which includes employees and investors. Um, you know, I don't have to tell you, Lawrence, but the product that we deliver to our customers is probably the most important thing to society besides clean water. And, uh, uh, and it's only going to get more important as we continue to electrify other industries. So um, really, really, I guess the other thing I felt was a sense of commitment. You know, I wanted to make sure that I, we did continue to deliver on the clean energy transition. We did continue to deliver on reliability. We do give back to our communities. And, you know, um, again, it, it's, it was excitement, awe, uh, humbling, um, uh, and the sense of a lot of responsibility. But it's been a great run. And um, you asked if it was easier to be uh, have been already with Excel Energy for 15 years. And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, you know, the ability to not only know the company and its people, but also to know the communities, our regulators, all the nuances that uh, I think uh, aren't necessary to be successful, but they sure do help you be successful if you already have that in your back pocket. Yeah, I like the point you made about humility. I think that's a very important leadership trait, and we hope more leaders will adapt that uh, in the present world in which we live. We need humility. Uh, so let's talk about Excel's journey. Uh, what are some of the major milestones that have occurred under your leadership up to 2020. And I wanna make a distinction between 2020 coming up to that, and then we'll get into the actual year 2020, but up to 2020, what were some of the major milestones you'd like to highlight? Well, so up to 2020, that would have been nine years. Although, as you know, I, 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 uh, I served as CEO uh, for 10 years until I stepped down this August and now executive chair. But, you know, during that time frame, I would say the, the tremendous, improvements we made in safety and operational excellence. Um, you know, it's safety has got to be job one. And, and I think we do a lot more than just talk about it. We've, we've had a remarkable journey. Uh, and it's one that's so important to me personally, because again, back to that responsibility um, that I feel for our employees, I don't want to see any of them get hurt. And, you know, we work with an inherently dangerous product. So we've made a lot of strides improving our safety procedures, practices, and probably more importantly, our culture. Um, and then it's the operational uh, performance. We've always had a very, very strong storm response, and that's that only got better uh, as my tenure as CEO. And I'm really proud, Lawrence, of the performance of our nuclear fleet. When I first became CEO, um, we were one of kind of one of the laggards in the industry, always safe, but certainly not one of considered one of the operating excellent fleets. Today, that's the opposite. Today, we are considered um, one of the best, if not the best, fleet in the country. So. Really proud about that. Of course, I work for an investor-owned utility. Um, and so <laughs> share performance is important. And our stock went from, when I was CEO, from $24 to, it peaked at uh, over 70 today. It's in the mid-60s. It's about a total shareholder return of about 300%. Mm -hmm. 
uh, match that against our peers. It, it's, they were about 200%, so about 100% difference. Our market cap tripled to $36 billion. Uh, every single year, we hit our earnings guidance. And uh, every single year, we delivered on our dividend promise. So we really have delivered on the, the expectations that we gave our investors. We've delivered on those promises. And then, of course, I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but the clean energy transition. You know, um, we have been a leader in renewables. We have been a leader in moving away from coal um, and, and for energy conservation. As a result, we've already reduced our carbon emissions by more than 50% off of that 2005 baseline. And uh, we've got plans to continue to move forward. Um, I mentioned already that we, we've got a vision to be carbon free by 2050. We'll move as fast as technology allows us. Um, and we have a vision to, uh, well, not a vision, we're going to execute on the 80% carbon reduction uh, by 2030. And at the same time, we'll keep our product affordable, and reliable. And the importance to that is um, that allows us to also then economically electrify other sectors of the economy. And I'm super excited about uh, electrification of transport because, you know, if you look at it, when you fill up with uh, Excel Energy today, it's about a 70% carbon uh, emissions reduction. It's going to be even more by 2030 when we hit that interim goal. And if you do it off peak, it, it costs you about 60 cents a gallon of gasoline equivalent. So wow. it's a really good deal. And that's why I'm optimistic that um, we will achieve our goal of, of um, supporting 1.5 million EVs uh, on the road by 2030 in, in the territories that we serve. You know, one of the things you mentioned, Ben, when you talked about your financial performance, this is one of the things when I talk to utilities around the world, one of the things that always intrigues them is how the U.S. utilities, the investor-owned utilities are pretty good in attracting capital to this industry. And I think the point you made in terms of delivering a product is one that more companies, especially in, in the developing world in Africa, they always ask me, say, Lawrence, how do you guys raise capital? And, and I think that's something they can certainly learn from. But let's pivot to 2020. Uh, it was undoubtedly one of the most difficult years facing the world. We had the global pandemic. We had the economic downturn. We have civil unrest in the U.S. How did Excel navigate the situation? You know, it was a lot of uncertainty, uh, new kinds of risks. So how do you guys navigate that, that very, very tricky, delicate situation? Well, it starts with having a great workforce. I mean, I, I'm really, really proud of the, uh, how our employees stepped up through it's an overworked word, but it really was an unprecedented time, right? And, and you know, some examples of that, you know, half of our workforce or 5,000, about 5,000 employees, within a week, we, we, uh, we took them from the office to the, their homes and worked remotely. And we did that with very few glitches. So our IT teams really stepped up to make a difference there. Um, safety is so important to us. Well, we had different safety considerations now, right? Not only for our employees, but to keep our communities safe. And I think we really, uh, we really, in early days, we really scrambled to make sure we had the proper uh, PPE equipment, uh, did some innovation there. Uh, and then, of course, we developed safety protocols, you know, dynamically and on the fly in some cases as, as the guidance was changing almost daily. Uh, at the same time, Mother Nature didn't stop delivering storms and other things, not only in, in the areas we serve, but across the United States. And, and, you know, mutual aid and storm response was as strong as ever, and we stayed safe doing it. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, to your point, were impacted by COVID-19, including our own communities and customers. And we worked with our regulators to develop plans to help 
ease the burden uh, for those that could not afford to, to pay their bills, uh, their electric bills or their gas bills during this time. And, and that's good. But what I was also really excited about is up here in Minnesota, we worked with our commission and to develop uh, more capital plans to help jumpstart the economy. And those plans were ultimately approved. And I think that'll make a difference going forward. And then finally, as I'm sure everyone knows, uh, George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. Well, Minneapolis is our headquarters. And you know that had a tremendous impact on me personally, our employees, our communities, obviously were very hurt. Um, and to me, it, it, it was really an eye-opening moment that we really need to do something different as a company, as an individual, and as an industry. And, you know, you mentioned I was chair of EEI during this time. And um, so I had three um, key initiatives. And one of them was to do more around uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And our industry stepped up. All member companies adopted additional um, best practices around uh, DEI. And here at Excel Energy, uh, we started out after the death of George Floyd by having some pretty, we call them crucial conversations around race. I led that with um, a senior management leader who happens to be African-American. Uh, I thought those conversations resonated with the employee base. And then, as you know, you manage what you can measure. So for the first time, we put a DEI indicator on our annual scorecard, which is part of how we all get paid. Mm-hmm. And it really, I think it'll change over the years, Lawrence, but it started with one a survey of how our employees feel about it if we're making a difference. Mm-hmm. Two, how many new hires go through um, uh, a diverse uh, interview panel, um, trying to uh, scrub out unconscious bias. Of course, that's a best practice. We also uh, created a sponsorship program for, for every one of my senior management team, including myself. We were paired and are paired um, with someone that is diverse. You know, and it's not a mentor program, it's a sponsorship program. So we're really invested in that person's long-term success at Excel Energy. And as I mentioned, I think it'll change over time. But to me, that was the priming of the pump type of an indicator that we could get started on. Excellent. So you've taken us from 150 years, Ben, to 100 years, and we've just done 2020, uh, so 2019. Now, 2020, we've talked about it. Let's look forward. Uh, let's talk about the vision of Excel going forward. What are some of the strategic priorities you'd like to highlight? Yeah, Lawrence, there's really three that we've had in place for uh, a few years now, and I think we will have in place for many years to come. And that's the first is that we want to lead the clean energy transition. You know, I always said, if you're not leading, you're going to be led. And this is just too important to get public policy and other things right. And it's too important to our key stakeholders. So we want to lead it. Um, we want to enhance the customer experience. I mean, you know, I don't think we can serve customers the same way we did 20 years ago. They, they have higher expectations, higher demands, and we need to keep up with that. And so we are a regulated utility, but I want to customize and engage our customers in ways that uh, really delight them. And one of the ways I think you can do that is by facilitating uh, electric vehicles and making it easy for them uh, when they make that choice. And I, we can talk more about that if you like. And then the third key initiative is you got to keep bills low. Um, if you, you know, if you let your product get too expensive, you know, bad things are going to happen. So I think all of those three things work together. And if you can do that, I think you've got the recipe for success. Now, you know, I've talked a little bit about the clean energy transition, but we are well on our way to achieving that 80% carbon reduction by 2030. Uh, we're going to get there, um, with 
tactical plans in front of our regulators, which would allow us to con continue to move away from coal, completely so in the upper Midwest, uh, preserve our carbon-free nuclear fleet, very, very important, not only to Excel Energy, but I think to the United States and I dare say the world, um, uh, at put as much renewables on the big grid as the big grid can uh, accommodate. Uh, that'll vary by region. It's as much as 80% in Colorado and in other regions, it's, it'll be about 66%. Uh, and then to make sure that we have reliability and affordability in mind, we have to back up um, our grid with natural gas. And we can do that and all of that we can do at, at, a, at a price point that I believe is less than uh, inflation. In, in fact, I'm hoping it's, it's considerably less than inflation. So that's a little bit about where I see 2030. It's, uh, it's exciting. Well, it's, it's interesting you lay it out that way, because then if I go back to the numbers, 80% carbon reduction by 2030, 100% carbon-free electricity by 2050, uh, what are some of the concrete actions? You've talked about some of them already, actually. So what about the obstacles? I mean, do you see any obstacles uh, down the road that we need to think about? And, and how do you mitigate some of those obstacles or remove them uh, to not uh, hinder you from accomplishing your goals? Well, I, there are some barriers. I mean, I think we've got to be pragmatic. We, again, we can't lose sight of affordability and reliability. I mean, if, if you do, um, I think the clean energy transition is going to be slowed down or come to a screeching halt. So I mentioned to you that we want to put as much renewables, large-scale renewables, which, by the way, are far more economically efficient than smaller uh, renewables, scale matters in our business, we want to put as much as we possibly can on the big grid that we're all connected to. Um, but you can't run a big grid just on renewables and, and batteries. So we are going to need to preserve our nuclear fleet. And most people recognize the carbon-free nature and the 24-7 dispatchability of, of the nuclear fleet. But we need to make sure that those uh, plants survive. Um, we need to accept the fact that you're going to need some natural gas. Uh, it, to help integrate that amount of wind and keep our product reliable. Uh, not everybody accepts that premise, but it's, it's, it is a reality. Uh, and you don't want to wait for the magic technology to appear, you know, in, on Christmas Eve of uh, <laughs> 2029 that gets you there. So we got to move forward today with what we have. Yes. Um, and of course, then we also have to make sure that um, barriers to building transmission are mitigated as much as possible because we're going to need more transmission and so we can have more renewables and so we can have more resiliency. So, you know, it means that we have to have really sound public policy at both the federal level uh, and at the state level to make this happen. And I'm optimistic we will get there, but it's uh, part of what I mentioned before is when you're leading the clean energy transition, you got a better chance of shaping public policy and and making sure that uh, it works and is sustainable and not going to sacrifice affordability or reliability. Yeah, it's so amazing how the word, the word or the phrase public policy keeps coming up all over the world. And I hope that uh, people take that, take that to heart and pay attention to it. I just want to go back quickly, Ben, to 2005. I mean, as I was preparing for this conversation, I know that in your in your uh, energy, Excel Energy's 2020 sustainability report, there was a diagram that, that showed how much your trajectory aligns pretty well with the Paris Accord. Uh, and I was wondering, I mean, when you guys decided to do this journey in 2005, and when I look back, 
what foresight did you all have? I mean, what confidence you had? I mean, today there are still companies that are investing in in coal plants, but you all seem to have been at this even before the Paris Agreement. So what gave you all confidence that you were going to succeed? Yeah, well, I would say, Lawrence, first, our, our philosophy has definitely evolved since 2005. But back in 2005, you know, remember, our tagline is responsible by nature. And so, you know, we were we were we were looking further ahead and seeing that, you know, coal eventually will probably be phased out. And at that time, uh, there were some environmental uh, retrofits required. And what we decided to do is make some of those investments on our coal plants. I, I mentioned to you, our, you know, we've evolved our thinking, uh, but we're the older ones. We said, you know what, given where we think it's going to be perhaps in 15 and 20 years, let's not make those investments. Let's instead convert those plants to natural gas. And that was the right decision, uh, particularly with hindsight, given where the prices of natural gas were. But at the time, it looked like that could actually be an expensive decision, right? Because natural gas was more expensive then. But we, I think we, we argued to our key stakeholders that, you know, you want more fuel diversity, um, you know, prices, commodity prices change, uh, and environmentally, we need to get started on this. And we can't justify putting a billion dollars in a, a plant that's now 40 years old. So we moved forward with that. At the same time, you know, we started to see, um, you know, wind was was not the least expensive resource in 2005, but but uh, but by uh, by 2015, it became apparent to me that it was uh, as the technology moved on and public policy supported by uh, the uh, uh, production tax credits made it um, really a good call. So it's worked out pretty well for us. Interesting, interesting. You used the word phased out. Uh, and I want to just go to one interesting thing I discovered when I studied your uh, your your annual report, uh, that in many parts of the world, phasing out coal typically brings concerns about, you know, the community, what's going to happen. But Excel has been, you know, you've retired seven coal-fired plants with zero layoffs. That's unprecedented. How do you do it? You know, I have a saying that the clean energy transition is the right thing to do, but it it can be real painful when it's impacting you personally, right? And so one of the ways we've been able to not lay off people is give them long lead times. You know, uh, we don't announce it and close it tomorrow. And, you know, there's a lot of retirements in our industry and at Excel Energy. So we've used natural attrition uh, and we've retrained people and we're a big company. And if you want to stay at Excel, we'll find you a job. But Lawrence, it's all, so that's something we've been able to do for our employees. Um, and I think, you know, coal was the backbone of energy in America for decades and decades. And people that worked at those coal plants did a great job. And I just don't think they should be uh, tossed aside. And, and we haven't done that and we won't. Same goes with the communities that are losing a coal plant. Um, you know, that's a lot of job, economic, um, economic base and tax, uh, tax revenue through property taxes. So we've worked with those impacted communities. We've doubled down on our economic development efforts. In some cases, we've repurposed those sites and, and built a, you know, a gas replacement generation. Um, and in other cases, for example, in Becker, Minnesota, we actually attracted uh, data centers. So at the end of the day, they, they did just fine. Yeah. So um, it's just really, I think that's what's unique about the regulated utility industry is you know, we do take care of our communities and we do think long term when it comes to our employee compacts, et cetera. So 
It can be done, but you have to really be uh, committed to do it. Yeah, and in your in your journey, Ben, there seem to be a lot of sort of a initiative that have been driving this journey. One that I find intriguing is this so-called steel for fuel initiative. So what is it? When did it start? And what have been some of the accomplishments to date with this steel for fuel? Yeah, it's, it's steel for fuel. Um, S-T-E-E-L. <laughs> sure. yeah, that's, that's a good distinction. Steel for fuel. That's correct. So what does it mean? So this, it really, steel for fuel really came to our, our, our thought process around 2015. And it's, again, you combine the breakthroughs in technology with both wind and solar combined with the tax credits. And if you pencil it out on paper and our service territory, where again, we have some of the best wind in all of the country from Minnesota all the way down to Texas and from Colorado down to Texas, some of the best solar. So we could add steel in this case, wind farms that after you got a return on the asset and everything else, put all the, the cost of that wind farm in place. It was actually, cheaper than the variable cost of the fossil fuels that we put in our coal and gas plants. So we could, doesn't mean those gas plants might not have to be for a backup, but if we can, when the wind's blowing and we're not using natural gas in the plants, it pencils out that it was cheaper. So mm -hmm. steel for fuel, we're swapping, uh, we're giving steel and, and displacing fuel. Now that saves customers money. Uh, because it was a cheaper uh, uh, resource, it advances carbon reduction, and it created a tremendous investment opportunity for us. Um, for the benefit of your listeners, fuel in most regulated utilities and in Excel Energy is a pass-through expense. We don't make money on it. Uh, we don't hopefully lose money on it. It's a pass-through. We earn on capital. And so the steel, I'm actually getting a return on capital. And so I'm getting earnings growth. Again, okay. customers are benefiting from it. And I'm displacing uh, an item on, on a customer bill that we don't earn on. So it allowed us to keep our rates uh, and total bills very flat, while at the same time we were growing earnings and rate base, you know, by that, you know, uh, six, seven percent margin. Mm -hmm. So it's worked out really well. And I think a lot of people are trying to um, basically replicate that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's good. And, and it's important to know that you keep coming back to the theme of affordability, which I think is extremely important. But Ben, look, be honest, Excel is not the only company in the world pushing out renewables. We got other electric companies. We have you know, large corporations trying to increase their renewable footprint. Do you have any concerns about the supply chain not being adequate to meet the increased global demand for low carbon technologies? And most specifically, if we talk about solar, I mean, we see the supply chain issues being raised today on the price of solar. So what can industries do or the industry do uh, maybe along with government to to manage these supply chain issues, Lawrence. I won't. I won't tell you. I have all the answers to your question. Um, I, I am concerned about it. I hope it's transitory. We hear that word a lot these days, um, but there's no doubt that you know the the, the minerals and the materials that make up um, solar and and to a lesser ex extent uh, wind farms are in high demand today, uh, and they come in some places from countries that are tough to do business with and have a history of human rights violations. So mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a couple of things I'd like to see done. Uh, I'd like to see uh, more domestic sourcing of materials or at least sourcing of materials where, you know, these are uh, more ethical uh, countries. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think though, when I talk to the experts and things like battery technology and other things, 
they're innovating every single day and finding um, less scarce materials to uh, to build batteries and, and solar panels with. And I think that technology will continue to advance. So uh, again, I think it's a it's a short-term worry and maybe even a medium-term worry, but I think innovation and 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 again public policy um, will make it not the issue uh, of for, for long-term concern. We'll come back to innovation when I, I like to talk about the 24 by seven, you know, carbon free technology. But before I do that, I just want to go back to natural gas. And, and I want to put it in the context of obviously diversity in power supplies is key. Uh, we've seen that relationship play out in different parts of the world. We saw it in the US and Texas, in Japan, we've seen it. And most recently in the UK and the EU, where we've seen prices go up because of this dynamic between natural gas and renewable, so to speak. So how important, and, and help the audience to understand, because I'm not sure everyone understands it, how important is natural gas in integrating vast amounts of renewables in the energy mix? And, and what mechanisms, be it public policy or market mechanisms you think uh, should be considered to make sure we preserve reliability, preserve resilience and preserve affordability? I think we've had a lot of lessons learned in just the last two years, Winter Storm Uri being a great example of that. Look, uh, you know, natural gas uh, is a great fuel to ramp up and ramp down, which is what you need to do when you're integrating renewables, because obviously um, the wind is going to blow harder at different times of the day and sun's going to shine and clouds can come over. We need to be able to, to um, keep the grid in balance. And I think gas is a very good technology to do that. Batteries play a role too, but to, to, to today, you're really looking at four hour, hour batteries and we need far more than that to keep a, a reliable system. I think the other thing that we're finding though is I want people to understand, you know, 20 years from now, or maybe even sooner, I don't know. I think there'll be some blend of natural gas with hydrogen and other things. And we'll work on those other uh, technologies that'll get that last 20% of carbon off the grid. But in the meantime, and I, I know I sound like a broken record, you, you need to keep your product reliable. And I think we need to also understand, as we move away from coal, coal was, you know, it's, it's a solid fuel, as you know. I mean, you can, if you're at a power plant, you can look out there and you can see where your, <laughs> where, where your fuel stock is. Yes. Um, natural gas can come over, you know, thousands of miles of pipeline. Wind, uh, wind energy can come over thousands of miles of, of transmission line. So we need to really emphasize resiliency uh, more so today than ever before, because one, we're gonna need natural gas. Two, as we move away from coal, we'll, we'll have more of that, that resiliency coming from natural gas. And I think we, we need to take the lessons learned from things like winter storm Uri and the importance of resiliency and making sure that you're planning for more, um, more, more unusual weather type patterns, because that's what I think we're looking at uh, uh, as time goes on. And so our resiliency planning needs to be something that is um, front and center and needs to be a shared task, I think, with uh, our communities and our regulators so that we get it right. Yeah, it's interesting how the, how the grid has evolved the energy system. About 50 years ago, uh, my father was an electrical engineer. I spent some time with him before he passed. And he always used to say, reliability, reliability, reliability. Yeah. So now we got, we got reliability under control for the most part in many parts of the world. The issue now is resilience. So it's kind of funny to see how the 
not funny, but interesting to see how the, the requirements of the grid keeps evolving, right? So before it was all about reliability, now it's resilience, which is great. You mentioned- well, You didn't have to worry about cyber concerns back then either, you know? There's... Exactly. So yeah, that's true. And, and yes, I remember the first time I went into a control center many years ago, I was amazed when I saw the dashboards and, and, and now everything is digitized. So it's amazing. Uh, you talk about innovation. And if you look at all the pathways for a carbon-free electricity, innovation is key. Uh, during your tenure as the chairman of EEI, one of the things you also did was to launch the Carbon-Free Technology Initiative. Uh, can you give a few examples of uh, some of these technologies and specifically the ones that Excel is exploring? Yeah, well, um, trying to be technology agnostic, uh, Lawrence, but I do have some, some favorites. <laughs> um, the important thing is one, you know, we've got a wonderful resource in the United States with our national labs and I'm really thrilled to see additional funding going to those labs to develop that next generation of technology because it will take time. So, um, you know, what are those technologies? Well, I think we could see, um, you know, long-term storage. Um, you know, we got to get beyond four hour batteries because, you know, we have seasonal issues. Um, I'm interested in, you know, uh, super uh, deep and hot, deep ge geothermal. Um, we've had a lot of discussion and I know there's a lot of discussion in Europe around hydrogen. One of the things we're doing at one of our nuclear plants is looking at a pilot program where we would make hydrogen uh, at the nuclear plant. And I think that's very exciting. Mm. Uh, I think that, um, I honestly think that to achieve our carbon reduction goals, we're gonna need not only to preserve our existing nuclear fleet, but I think we're gonna need the next generation of nuclear. Um, it's, it's density. Um, is, is really, as you know, very small and its ability to integrate and to be there 24 seven, I think is key. And then of course there's carbon capture um, and that's, it's had its challenges to date, but um, that doesn't mean it won't be a big part of the solution going forward. So we need to put um, efforts and time into that both at the labs, but then of course, getting it from the lab to commercial operation is where I think the public-private partnerships will come in and make a big difference. And, and, and I mean, I'll be honest with you, Ben, there's also a global demand for, for some of these technologies. If you think of, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, you think of uh, India, those places, they will need some of these technologies. So the market is there. It's not just a U.S. market, but the U.S. could be the catalyst for, for getting this uh, moving forward. Uh, just before we wrap up, Ben, I got two, uh, two last questions for you. I want to go back to the issue on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, when you were also chair of EIA, you've always already mentioned this is one of the things you prioritize. Um, can you just talk briefly about what else Excel has done to, to promote this and to also drive this, this concept, not even a concept, this reality in the company to promote DE&I? Well, Lawrence, like so many other things, it really starts with the CEO and the management team and the board. I mean, it went, and when the employees see uh, my commitment, I think it, it, it translates. And, and having it now on a scorecard indicator shows that this isn't you know, a flavor of the day sort of thing. This is gonna be a journey, just like our carbon reduction um, story has been. You don't do that overnight, but you gotta get started and you gotta measure it and you gotta be consistent. And I think that's what you'll see Excel doing again. I think the industry is right with us and have done some pretty amazing things. And the fact that we all stepped up and realized we could do better learn from each other and adopted each other's best practices, I think is something we should be proud of. Um, you know, the other thing too is, is, you know, we have tremendous buying power. You know, we spend a lot of capital. 
So we have a wonderful opportunity to um, spend our money with diverse suppliers. And in 2020, we spent um, 640 million or about 13% of our total spend with uh, diverse owned businesses. And that's, um, that's really a best practice on how we do that and, and how we've set that up. And, you know, there's nothing like uh, uh, lending a helping hand to a diverse entrepreneurial uh, group uh, to get them started and to have them flourish because that's uh, that's the best way I think to bridge some of these these unfortunate gaps that we're, we're trying to close. Yeah, and I think given what we're going to need in the industry in terms of labor work, labor force, I think you know the more you can build the, la- the labor force, even on the supply side with diversity, I think it creates an opportunity. We can do a better job of getting out to the communities and letting kids know that the corporate world awaits for them, and as does some of these trade jobs. I mean, you know, I don't think kids realize just how much you can make as a lineman mm-hmm. and how much you can make as a power plant operator. And those jobs aren't going to be outsourced. And so we're, we're sponsoring a number of uh, initiatives uh, within the territories that we serve to, to get kids more excited about joining the ener- energy industry, whether it's on, you know, on, the, on the back office side or right out there in the field, you know, keeping the lights on. Yeah, in fact, it's kind of funny you could bring that up. So I recall when I was when I was studying, at, you know, doing my PhD. One of the things my my father used to say to me, he he always used to say, uh, "Remember that electricity is always going to be needed." Uh, so I wanted to go into you know you know complex system, all these sort of crazy things that I would say now crazy. But he said, "Energy and electricity will always be needed. So pick a career that will never be out of demand." And I think electricity is one of those things. No matter what you do. People will always need to have the lights on. So, so, so I, I, I give him credit. He, he gave me that advice. But I want to wrap up with one, one last question here, Ben. And, and this time I'd like to fast forward this conversation and let's go to 2050. Uh, but we'll make a stop in 2030. Okay. And given those two worlds, if you may, or time horizons, what kind of world do you imagine that Excel Energy could be operating in? And what concerns you about that future and what excites you about that future? Well, um, you know, Lawrence, um, I'll be in my early 70s in 2030, um, so I won't be at Excel Energy anymore, but I want to I talk to whoever's the CEO then, and, and, and I'd be really excited to share uh, a glass of cheer with them when we do hit an 80% carbon reduction goal. I know we can do that. Um, I'm also going to be hopefully excited about some of the, the developments that, is, that have occurred um, over the next nine years to get that last 20% out. Maybe it's one of those technologies that I just talked about we've seen a breakthrough in. Um, I'm hoping that we have really unique and different ways to engage with our customers. Um, again, I think we have a great opportunity there with EVs, um, you know, uh, making it easy for customers that want to have an EV to, you know, to go to the auto dealer, contact Excel Energy. We can put a charger in your, in your garage. We can do it if you're in multi-dwellings and, and then give you um, promotional opportunities to charge off-peak, which benefit everybody, whether or not you have an EV or not. We benefit from off-peak charging. So I'm hoping we've met our goal of 1.5 uh, electric vehicles. And, and we're seeing, continue to be seen as a leader, not only the clean energy transition, but a leader in making positive change for our communities and the places we serve and, you know, always looking over the hill to the next opportunity. And I think when you do that, 
um, you can not only capture the opportunities, but you can mitigate the challenges that you have along the way. Well, Ben, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us on the Global Circuit uh, podcast. Uh, your leadership is certainly one that the industry admires. I should personally tell you that one of the things that you demonstrated when you were chairman of EI and you have done otherwise that I admire is your emphasis on punctuality. And so I was striving <laughs> to be done by 445 sharp, but I would take the two minutes and, 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 and blame the two minutes on technical glitches. So I would say that I made it to 445 and I, and I stuck to the Ben Folk tradition of being on time, start on time and on time. Got it, Lawrence. You did a great job. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org international.